Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, episode number 160. Really? It is, yeah. We've left the 50s. We have left the 50s. It did actually feel like we were in the 50s for a while. It did. Yeah, you're right. It was almost like I miscounted, but no, genuinely, it is 160 only now. It's just been a long six weeks since Christmas, that's all. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers. Of the following four genres crime, mysteries, thrillers, and suspense. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week is Tim Franks, who is an author based just down the road, down the road in Wolverhampton, which is about what, 15 miles from us. Yeah, I mean, I used to go there regularly three times a week, so it's very close. It is, yeah. And uh, Tim is something of an expert in something that's really fundamental to the way that literature is taught. <laughs> in yes. the UK, which is phonetics, and did you have to do jolly phonics with your children? Oh no, not well. Yes, absolutely. Do you remember jolly phonics? Oh well, and, well I <laughs> absolutely inculcated. And as we explained in the interview, uh, within my uh, old setup of family, uh, phonics was a big feature. Yes, of course, same here. But I remember jolly phonics being. We actually went to the parents went to a session where we were taught all the songs oh, and the movements. And oh, I didn't do any of that. No. The, the snake one and no. all sorts. No, no, no. I didn't. T- <laughs> I personally didn't touch any of that rubbish. But I mean, no, it's very important. I was but... going to say, be careful what you say. <laughs> well, I mean, there are plenty of people out there who think phonics is is bad and you should be taught somewhere else. But it is the way it's done. But anyway, Tim is an expert on that, and of course, that has an implication in the way that he writes. Yes, absolutely. And it's a fascinating discussion yeah. yet again with another writer. Yeah, it's a different, completely different way of looking at it. And um, I think the, the central message that you get from it, and we'll hear this, is you know, really take a close look at the readability of your text. Yes. From the perspective of things, you know, that words and combinations of, of particularly consonants that can trip people up. And, uh, and and also things that might not seem obvious. Yeah, if it's you, really, really interesting. It's about sort of stepping back from the text, isn't it? And just sort of looking yeah. at it with a fresh um, perspective. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, we, we've got a confession to make. So this podcast is going out slightly later than normal uh, because we're recording it on the Monday it goes out. Yes, yeah, so the reason <laughs> in a few minutes. <laughs> so there is a reason for this. And it's simply that we sat down, as we normally do at the weekend, and start looking for stories that we can talk about. And on Sunday, the what, whatever it was, the eleventh of February, <laughs> it you're the, really on the ball, aren't you, with the dates? <laughs> well, it doesn't. Yeah, Look, it's, it's Valentine's Day in two days. You should know this. You should have it all planned out. Yeah, right. Anyway, uh, so it just there were nothing that we couldn't find anything 
No, it was, really it, was, it, was, it was a no news week. There was nothing except for swooping, s- you know, you snaring, know. snatching. And we don't do that sort of news, really. No, well, we've used to, and we're just not interested it in it anymore. It depends who it is. It does depend. If yeah. it's somebody of interest to us personally, like some ex-BBC sports well, I, I mean, well, no, no. I think the, the thing is, if it's an indie author switching to the dark side, yeah. then, then we want to talk about it. I but... don't think you should call it the dark side. No? No. Oh. I work for the dark side. Yeah, I know you do. And so, well, so do I. <laughs> In fact, we are of... the dark side. <laughs> We're yeah. a publisher. Yeah, but I'm talking about the big ones, you know, the the, the, the big five. Okay, fair All enough. Right. Um <laughs> You know, so um, no, we, we we just couldn't find anything that that tickled our fancy. And then I said, "Look, let's just sleep on it, and something will show up that provokes us, that gives us an opportunity in our news section to have a debate about something." Yes, and it did. And so, it did. First thank goodness for that. So we're going to an article in the Guardian. Yes. So um, what's the headline? Well, I'll just introduce it first. So when I went to the IPG, Independent Publishers Guild. Um, Autumn, Autumn Conference, conference. Yeah. Uh, the, the keynote speech at the end was about uh, different demographics of reading and what the different demographics like to read, what formats and what genres. And it was fascinating. And in that speech, we were told about uh, Gen Z. So we both have children within that generation. This is so, people born between 97 and 2012. Yeah. So all of our kids. All of our kids are in, in that. Our generation Z, yeah. So the headline of this article is about this, about Gen Z and what they like to read. Reading is so sexy, Gen Z turns to physical books and libraries. And this was mentioned in this keynote speech. And I remember picking up on this and going home and saying to Josh, who's in Gen Z, my son, saying, you are the perfect embodiment of this because you love books. Yes. You don't read your Kindle. He gets very excited when an Amazon parcel arrives because he's ordered another <laughs> book or two. And he, he spends That's what he spends his money on. Yes, he does. And this article um, it describes him perfectly because they're not reading necessarily reading contemporary books. They're reading the classics as well. Um, so the article also focuses on... Uh, 22-year-old model Kaya Gerber, who I've never heard of, but she's Cindy Crawford's daughter. And she's launched her own book club called Library Science, which I think is an interesting choice of words, actually, science. Anyway, um, so she uses it as a platform, as she says, a platform for sharing books, featuring new writers, hosting conversations with artists we admire, and continuing to build a community of people who are as excited about literature as I am. Uh, books have always been the great love of my life, she added. Reading is so sexy. Now, I don't know if Josh finds reading sexy. He just loves it. Um, but apparently Gerber isn't alone. Uh, 60, uh, 669 million physical books were sold. Um, the highest ever recorded. Now, that can't just be elderly people. Or... No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's obviously... Maturer people. Let's come on. Oh, is that... Okay. I don't know. I mean, it just feels like a nicer way to say it. Yeah, OK. So... People who traditionally read physical books in their childhood and their teen years, so people like us and above. Mm. Um, We know that isn't the case. We know it isn't because we know that they're turning to e-books or have been over the last decade or so. So it is the younger generation, the Gen Zers, not the millennials. They've sort of moved on. (laughs) Well, they're they're they're, having babies. They're having babies and, yeah, book buying is going to be for their their toddlers and whatever else. Yeah. And BookTok is a part of this because BookTok advocates physical books. You know, you see the readers holding the book, Mm. um, you know, going on about how wonderful it is and and 
the this generation is watching TikTok and BookTok and going to buy the physical books. You go into any Waterstones now and you see a table, don't you, of t- TikTok sensations or BookTok sensations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one book that's always on that table, and that's Donna Tartt's The Secret History. Yes. Which I read many years ago. Um, it was written, must be, 30-plus years ago. I'm not sure exactly, but... It's come back into vogue. Because... It was the 80s, wasn't it, when it was published, or was it? Or yeah, 90s? so that's four, yeah, yeah. 80, so, late yeah. 80s, I think. Yeah, anyway, so coming up for 30 years. Yeah, yeah it was her, her her debut book. She didn't write another one for 10 years after that. It was a bit of a cult classic. But it's become a bestseller. You see it everywhere. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They relate to it because it's about a group of students, and it's a thriller. That's all I need to say. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So it's things like that. And I, I think this is fascinating, but I suppose the question is, as us, as Hobeck Books, mm. can we capitalise on this in any way? What, what is, is there anything well, we can do to sort of tap into this? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that the, the whole book talk thing, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the sort of money that was being paid to influencers on TikTok to promote books, being offered by that um, American author who got himself in hot water because he asked them also to uh. to dress scantily and and sexily and all that stuff. Um, you know the the money involved in in getting a book top promotion is monumental. Yes, I mean, we, we certainly can do that. No, no, no. I mean, if you think about the sort of, I mean, we're talking about an individual getting the fee that you would pay a, a, a PR campaigner mm. in this country for just one endorsement. And maybe maybe it is cost effective and it and it works and it you know sells Caswillian books. But I think the thing that we need to think about for Hobeck, if we're going to go down that route of appealing to that Gen Z, I you know I think our instinct is to say that our current stable of authors and our current offer, you know, our catalogue, isn't necessarily directed at that age group uh, in a way that Donna Tartt's would appeal. And you know Colleen Hoover or someone yeah. like that. So, you know, does there need to be if if Hobeck is to go that route, there would be a demographic uh, a demographic shift in authorship and uh, therefore an understanding of what appeals to that na- natively to that audience. Now, I've always felt that we, 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 our outreach work into universities. Well, we've done some work with Exeter, but we we're very keen to do more of it talk about publishing elsewhere you know it doesn't have to be where we went to university would be to find young people who are keen to be writers you know because how many people have been on this podcast and said I started writing in my teens and then life got in the way and it's only now I've retired I've gone back to it almost all of them exactly so can we as a company or can the industry perhaps is more pertinent because I think you know in our situation where we're just you know, we're battling to keep the company, you know, developing. Is it possible for the industry to start supporting writers at an age in their late teens and early 20s where their books can be brought to... And, 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 and that's the way to appeal to this this market. I agree, yeah. So something like the Henshaw Competition does a, a little bit for that because it offers a critique for under 16 for free. Right, and we haven't had that many, but I would like to uh, promote that more. I would, um, I would love to capture those. You know, to be in a position where, you know, as we do with our current authors, you know, the, the, to differing degrees, you know, we we have a 
a collaborative relationship over the actual text mm. as much as anything else. You know, the, obviously the covers and the marketing and all that sort of thing is, is a collaborative effort. But in terms of steering our authors and suggesting things that can strengthen their work or uh, take it in a, in a direction they hadn't thought of or whatever it might be, we do that. That's part of the, that's the joy of the process. Yeah, that's the bit we enjoy the most, I would say. I would say so, yeah. And could you do that? With an eco, create an ecosystem where you could do that for people, you know, with different expectations, different life experiences, perhaps not even experience of the workplace. You know, could you create that supportive environment and produce books that would appeal to Gen Z? I think that would be fantastic. And I think I'm not necessarily saying we're the people to do that. No, because we're already established in the market we're in. It's... Yeah, but I w- I think that's an opportunity that's that's lying open and i do have a friend who is um you know he's a graduate of exeter and when he was at exeter he started setting up a life coaching uh, business uh incredibly inventive which has spread across campuses and basically really oh yeah so is actually creating coaches from the student body and helping people to cope with the things that the challenges they face at university it's incredibly successful and uh, again he's another person who used to be on the radio at exeter and i met him about a decade ago he's done incredible work see that sort of thing can take off organically and it just takes somebody uh, you know we, you know we, it's just a young entrepreneur isn't it yeah but i think that can happen and it could happen in conjunction with more mature publishing businesses who've got the know-how and the nous and the the and you know the ability but to direct strengthen people's writing do you know this this does remind me there's a uh, publishing company based at uea um and it's actually called uaa uea publishing um i can't remember the the last mm-hmm. word but or uea publishing and i've just added them, them to the yearbook because they do exactly that and they've got lots of imprints and they all do different um aspects of publishing but they are encouraging uh, students through the university as well as staff as well to get into the publishing industry and to write um, yeah because i think that you know there is a really big gap in the market for a you know away from the fantasy genres which dominate gen z reading or stuff about well, relationships so we think yes exactly i think that's part of what this article is saying there is an opportunity i think for somebody to write mystery or suspense or whatever it is directly targeted at that group mm. you know locked room mysteries mis, uh, mysteries mysteries on um on campus yeah just would would take off and and you know it basically someone probably listening to this is going to go and make this happen but, but <laughs> well, I, I don't mind though that no I, th- I think i think it's the future and you know i really want in a sense, you want people from a certain generation to write for that generation and to be bought and read by that generation, and that is something that isn't currently happening. I think that's the difference, isn't it? It's who are the writers. We want the writers to be people like Josh, that generation, yeah. that age group. And, you know, to build an infrastructure that supports and, and creates and, and a movement, that would be great. And actually, in a way, that is so exciting but I don't think necessarily we're the people to achieve it. But no, no, I, I, you know, because I think you know, bottom line is that as we'll talk about after our interview with Tim Franks, you know, we're looking at half term where we haven't got the kids, and we're just thinking this is an opportunity to get on top of all the demands that we've got 
anyway. And also, I think the people who lead this have to be much younger than us. Yeah, I think as... I think we could lay the seed, you know, go out and, 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 and find that person who goes out and does it. Could you find somebody to then back it, which is what it's going to need. A it's, dragon. It's going to need, <laughs> yeah, basically a, a, a literary version of a dragon mm. to make it happen. But the idea and the opportunity is incredibly exciting, I think. Yeah, and actually if I was a big five publisher, I would think this would make a great new imprint. For them. Totally, totally, and you know you can see an exit strategy. Yeah, you could sell it to a big five, but I think in 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 a, in a way, it has to start from the ground up. And um, I know that probably on every campus there's somebody who could be the evangelist for this and build a network. And this is what my friend Robin has done with with his life coaching business. It's incredible what he's he's managed to achieve. So um, you know there there are models that suggest that this is possible and in the same way that jack wills for uh, as a as a brand clothing brand was set up by i think it was exeter students who then, really i yeah, didn't know yeah, that something like that and and it just be, just took off every campus then you know they'd have people selling this I and mean, it just became the brand to wear on campus everywhere across the uk i had no idea about that yeah yeah i've got a jack wills skirt so there you go um <laughs> you know but anyway look we digress, but that's that's a very interesting phenomenon that physical books are appealing to Gen Z. And I think in a way, that's also the marketplace for the special editions and the the, the things that, that, that... Sprayed edges. Well, yeah, something like that. Something that makes it a talking point. In the way that when we were students, our music collections were our identity when people came to your room at university <laughs> and looked through your tape. Your tape. Box, yeah. Your tape box, or you know, or when you got home, you know, your vinyl collection—that was the way that people. One of the ways they judge you. Yeah, you totally. Uh, and um, and I think that that's possibly what's going to happen with books. But anyway, um, and the other story—I mean, right at the other end of the age scale—and I, th- I think this is really important too because I've been thinking about my parents, and uh, again, I'll talk about that later. But um, I've made it. You know, I've discussed this before, but my mum has a, a form of dementia and she is in a care home. And when I saw her last week, uh, she was saying to me just how much she wants to enjoy a cultural life. But her eyesight's failing, so she can't read. Um, her fine motor skills are OK, but because she can't see, she can't knit anymore, which she used to t- take enormous pleasure from. And she was pining for an opportunity to listen to things and... Uh, music in particular but I do wonder whether this might appeal to her which is uh, a company I wasn't aware of until I saw this article in the bookseller Um, and it's a book they're called cognitive books and cognitive books set up by a couple to to create books that appeal to and, and support people with dementia and now they're launching audiobooks some of them narrated by Bill Nye very famous. So are they, are they a publisher? Is that what? They are a publisher, Cognitive Books, yeah. And okay. they are working with the Alzheimer's Society to figure out how best to produce products that, that, uh, that are accessible and appealing to people with dementia. Do you know what? I'm so actually surprised this is new. I'm surprised this hasn't happened before. Mm, I am too. Uh, so the, they're launching an um, uh, audiobook which has narration from Bill Nye, the first title, looking back at The Beatles, will be published on the 15th of April 2024. It was written by Cognitive Books founder Matt Singleton 
and developed in collaboration with the Alzheimer's Society. An audio version which will be free to download with every book is read by Nye. Uh, Looking Back at the Beatles was first written a simple story for Matt's father, Brian, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, which uh, my mother, I think, has vascular dementia or some sort of form like that. Uh, it was written in 2017, and um, Matt is a gerontologist, so, uh, you know, an expert in ageing. Um, and he he wrote it because his book-loving father was losing his passion for reading as his cognitive abilities declined. He created the book more tailored closely to his father's needs about his one of his great passions, the Beatles. And uh, his father's reaction encouraged him to share the book with dementia experts who suggested that he develop the book with the Alzheimer's Society Innovation Programme, which is helping to transform the dementia landscape with pioneering solutions to bring people hope living with dementia. So, uh, I wonder, in terms of the audiobook, oh, Nye, he says, I was grateful to be given an opportunity to help in a very small way with this dreadful condition that afflicts so many of us directly or indirectly. I hope these books can be valuable addition to the treatment already in place and bring the same satisfaction that they might in normal circumstances. I salute those involved in this project. Well, I'm desperate to get these guys on cognitive. Yes. I'm, I'm going to add them to the yearbook as well. Yeah. And they should join the Indie <laughs> press network perhaps, but what a good idea. And I Brilliant. think, um, and I'm just thinking, you know, in my head about my mum, you know, if there's some sort of, Simple operation technology where she can have some headphones, preloaded music and, and content that she can enjoy in her chair in the home. Whereas at the moment, the TV's blaring over the top of the sounds of people, you know, in some. Well, I mean, you know, many of us will have visited a home for with people with dementia. And there's a lot of distractions and noises by inmates and and staff alike should yeah. put it that way it is a strange environment and, and in a way my mum sat there sort of almost shut down really in her chair because you know she would rather not be drawn into everything that's going on around her she wants to have a little escape world of music and but could there be like headphone technology which has got big enough buttons so easy to operate you know it doesn't have to worry you know somehow easy to charge up would that be possible because i think that's that's really an important part of this mix but i think good luck to cognitive books and having looked at their website i think it's i mean it's, it's not clear how many products there are but it's a great idea it is a great idea and i think it will expand so for them so good luck to them absolutely right well that's a future interview we will we'll make that happen <laughs> we'd love to we'll we'll reach out to them see what happens. okay but this week's interview is with tim franks who is a former head teacher worked in education for a long time and um, took some initiative when he uh, was accessing the the phonics side of what well, you, you know about this the uh, yeah. is, what's it called the Oxford Reading Tree the Oxen, Oxford Reading yeah, Tree so from he Oxford University a, Press his, his stories about his brush with Oxford University Press are very funny and also very pertinent to me because I work there so that's worth listening to at the beginning of the interview yeah and uh, so he wrote to them and said look I think you, you know the way you're putting your books together and it just isn't quite right for uh, the learners that I'm, I'm dealing with. And so um, he got employed by them to start improving the way that the books were, were provided, you know, were laid out and and framed and actually started writing and for I, them. And I actually think that's really good of them to do because they obviously saw the, that this guy was 
had something important to say, I thought, why don't we just get him involved? Which, you know, you think about the publishing industry, that's pretty rare that they're prepared to take... Yeah, so I'm very impressed to take, that. you know, a random punter to, to and take them on board, which is terrific. And now he is a novelist as well, as he will tell us. So this is Tim Franks joining us from his home in Wolverhampton. Well, a great pleasure to be speaking to Tim Franks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. I have a question, quick question. You don't sound like you're very far away from us by your uh, accent. So... I'm from Wolverhampton. Oh, just down the road then, yes. Yes, not too far. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where I did my um, art degrees. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the art gallery last week for the um, for the Wolverhampton Literature Festival, which is okay, very, yeah. very good and it gets bigger each year. That's a lovely gallery, isn't it? It is super, absolutely super. Yeah. <laughs> have you been? No, I don't think I have. Because well, your exhibition of your was in Warsaw was a Warsaw, yeah. yeah. Again, the gallery's super there. Isn't oh, it? it's amazing! You don't yeah. you don't know you're in Warsaw, do you? When you're in that gallery, because you no, could be in no. South London. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. I don't wish to be disparaging about Wolverhampton. Oh, Warsaw! But, I just yeah. have. <laughs> but I'm about to be. It's one. <clears throat> you'll forgive me, Tim, but it's one of those places where I don't think the train approach is that prepossessing. Is that fair? Um, I believe that Queen Victoria used to insist that the blinds were drawn down between Wolverhampton and uh, Birmingham when she was travelling. So, uh, yeah. Um, I suppose urban brutalism would be your thing if you were going that way. Yeah. <laughs> I do that, like but urban brutalism. But I, I get the impression, because, <laughs> I mean, I, I was watching, I, I was out in Stratford-upon-Avon last week and I took the yeah. train and it takes you out through Digbeth in yeah. Birmingham, which is undergoing... A mega yeah. transformation. I mean, it already is a cultural quarter in its own right, yeah. but now the developers are formalising it, if you like, mm. because they're building a new BBC centre there. Oh. Where, yeah, oh. Master Chef's going to be based where the old Typhoon Factory used to be, oh, and right. of course the new HS2 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, train stations going in there as well. Yeah. So it feels like you know I've seen in Manchester just cranes everywhere, mm. but Wolverhampton, it strikes me, if Digbeth is gentrified, you have in Wolverhampton a huge area of, let's be honest, uh, um, I would say sort of abandoned industrial units and, and and some fantastic sort of Victorian architecture there that could become the next Digbeth. Well, uh, it's funnily enough, I was thinking that as I was moving along because uh, in the train on the way down to London, because you are looking at it, but then you go... I mean, if you go around East London or you go around sort of along the River Lee and all that, yeah, you set things up in industrial units. I mean, I've been to sort of trendy bars where it literally is an industrial estate. And um, if they just change the the windows, put new roofs on, but leave the character, that that's achievable. And and this is where they where they're all they're talking about planning laws and things like this. Well. These are the places where you should be exercising the right to develop because um, and they do become really trendy. My, I'm in a writing um, group called Room 204 that the Arts Council sponsor and that's um, that operates at the Custard Factory, which is just, you know, it is, is like one of the coolest spaces in Birmingham. It is. I've been there. It's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You'd love it. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure, yeah, I would. I would. I would. I mean, you know, look, my... Um, <clears throat> 
my impression of Birmingham improves every time I go there, which is, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of cultural activity in the West Midlands. I mean, Wolverhampton, mainly because I was at the art, ga- art school, I mean, that I was aware of it. But there's art studios, there's all sorts of things, as well as the um, art gallery and, and writers uh, groups yeah. and stuff. And the Literary Festival, of course, yeah, which you attended well. last think- week. I think I think the the West Midlands generally is very sort of self-deprecating, and and I think Manchester declares itself, and I think they they, they were trying to come out with a slogan for Birmingham, and I think it's Birmingham, come if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was like the advertising slogan. I think I heard um, Kit Duvall's brother come out saying about that. That was like, well, yeah, if you like, we've got lots going on, but you know, it's up to you if you want to bother. I love that. That yeah. is that is very appropriate for Birmingham. I think it's like, oh, go on if you want to. You've got nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, which makes me think of the time that they did try to big it up in the seventies with Telly Savalas. Yeah, doing the voiceover. That if you haven't seen it, uh, listeners. Um, Go on YouTube and ask for Telly Savalas Birmingham. Oh, it's brilliant. And it is just the most hilarious public information film ever made, I think. Have you have you seen it, Tim? I don't think I have, no. I mean, I, I, I do I have used the Telly, Telly Savalas line, Who Loves You Baby, in a short story that was on the BBC. <laughs> so, but uh, I haven't heard that one. Well, Google it after this well, interview. You won't regret it. it. No, you won't regret it. But just to describe what happens, I mean, it's basically a load of sort of... Um, Stock footage of Birmingham yeah. at the time when the bull ring had just been built and yeah. the uh, the mm, inner relief the road one. and all that stuff, <laughs> and uh, he voices up and pretends that he's been to Birmingham. So he's got this script saying, mm. "I got knocked out by the the this the you know the the amazing views and the uh, <laughs> and and then there's this bit where they're doing a disco dancing competition on a stage and he sort of go you know who loves you baby and all that yeah, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. it's it's just wonderful and it's a, it's a great time capsule i anyway. love birmingham i personally I, I love all that art that brutalist architecture and i quite like the sort of juxtaposition of all the you know modern you don't like it in manchester do you, you get cross <laughs> I, I get well i am very cross about what they've done to manchester and because when i moved to the north uh to manchester area and worked there that would have been 2011 mm-hmm. and at that point um, there was one, just one massive high-rise building there, and now there are skyscrapers all over mm. the place, which you know are almost as tall as anything in London, mm. and they're just residential glass columns, and they're all around the Deansgate area, which is the really yeah, yeah. interesting industrial heartland of, of yeah. Manchester. Yeah, and they did a really... fairly sympathetic sort of restoration of that area, I felt, and then. They've allowed the developers to go 750 feet up. Yeah, I must go. I haven't been to the centre of Manchester for ages, and I actually went to college there where I did my degree. And, oh, well, um, you needed another trip then. And, <laughs> yeah, and as you say, you'd walk through Piccadilly and then, but you'd step back a couple of streets into Ancoats and it was a different world. But now mm. that's, that's the trendy quarter. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, we can talk about yeah, urban yeah. redevelopment. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and actually, in a, in a sense... Um, our latest author signing is probably the person to talk about that because he's he was uh, uh, a, yeah. a man of international planning um, uh, substance. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. look, it's really lovely for you to join us, and 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 we um, really grateful. And uh, from Wolverhampton then to publishing last week. Yeah. How's that? How did I always ask this question of people first published? How did it feel to finally get the book out? Oh. oh. 
it's great when everybody starts phoning you up and saying they've seen it and family and friends. And, and for me, it was the relief, the relief as well, just to see something out there. And I've had books published before, but this is my first um, full length novel. And um, also it, it was a great moment when you see the cover and mm. I'm actually really pleased with the, the publisher went um, we had some lovely covers from a guy called Stuart Beich. I think it's... Oh, I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, some of them were a bit more generic of what works with crime. And even when we put them out to people, that there were more people wanted the, the more generic one. And the publisher went, no, we'll go with this one, we'll go with this one. And when it's come out, everybody that's looked at it said, gosh, that, that cover really grabs us. So the, Yeah, the, it's very strong... Yeah. Um, graphic sort of cover, really. Yeah, and I've seen it on on the in, on like Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does really stand out. Yeah, it's yours. Yeah, he um, he overlaid a map, a street map, I think, of Sheffield, and it suddenly it looked like blood vessels on the head. Yes. Yeah. It's clever. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, Stuart, Stuart, I know is sort of going through a sort of transformation in his career path. Oh, is so, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's moving away from from cover design to to a degree because he's got himself a uh, sort of a big gig with something else i think well, so this is part. this is one of his his yeah. his last works well, I think. okay <laughs> you know so it has a scarcity value I'll, I'll too his career. <laughs> days of long shadows is the book it yeah. came out uh as we say a week ago and it's set in sheffield yeah how well do you know the city um not that well to be truthful um my daughter lived there for a year or so um so i would go up then but there's just a sense of it almost being enclosed in a bowl and the fact mm. that it's um, very close to nature in the fact that you're very close to the Peak District. And um, I like to walk quite a lot and I like to see that movement in nature. And um, I kind of wanted to do somewhere... If I did it locally, there actually is stuff where I live we've got I go on a walk which you wouldn't believe existed in the middle of Wolverhampton where I can walk for three four five miles in greenery less than half a mile from my house and and, and it is almost and people don't realize that, that that places like this are here but I didn't want to start slipping too much into I think sometimes you can you can start writing cliches about you, you where you live, and I think that that's very much true of sort of the black country area. And I didn't want to drop into that, so I've used a bit of black country humour on a couple of the characters. So I've given the female lead used to work in Birmingham, so she makes the occasional remark, and they get help in the story. They get help from a, a bank manager who originated from Warsaw and she makes a few little jokes but I didn't want to overload it in case I got too parochial mm. Mm, interesting isn't it? I mean Sheffield is is unique I think in in the as you say it is chunks of the city are in the peak district are yeah, within the bounds yeah and as you come over from uh the west it is spectacular when well, no matter what you know whichever way you approach it i mean i usually come up through the hope valley and i don't uh, think i've ever been to sheffield past the the derwent water and all that stuff and and yeah. then you're you're in just it is stunning some yeah. some of the places are, are magnificent but 
I've been to the football match games as well and, and yeah. explored the centre of the city. It is yeah. it is a hidden gem, mm. I think. And um, it has through, I don't know, I mean, it has a civic pride that very few other cities can match, I think, mm. and yet not actually project itself terribly well to yeah. the rest of the world. Because it's funny, see, my, 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 uh, my eldest daughter got married just before Christmas and... Uh... Her boyfriend was studying medicine in Sheffield. That's why she was living there for a year. Yeah. And then my youngest daughter um, played her last proper football game at Bramall Lane because she played football for West Brom, although we were, we're Wolves fans. So it was <laughs> funny that, uh, but she played for, for West Brom for four years and, but she stopped. She said, well, I'm not going to be a footballer. I'm going to university. Um, and that was her, her very last game was at Bramall wow. But so, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, there's something just the shape of the place and the hills and the, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you'll have to take me then. Oh, yeah. you'd love it. Would I? Oh, I think you'd love Sheffield. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's go then. We'll go for Next the, week. if we can afford to get in, you know, by, we'll go to the snooker. You'd love <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> it's not that far away. Yeah. I don't want to go to snooker. You yeah. have to be quiet. <laughs> yeah. You get told off in snooker if you shuffle. <laughs> that is very true. It is one of the hardest things to watch live. Yeah. I've done I it before. I couldn't. And yeah, if you are a shuffle bottle, you are, you are in trouble. Yes. It, you, you didn't like me drinking my pims at Wimbledon. So what am I going to be like at snooker? <laughs> well, you kept slurping it very loudly behind the, the players' serve. It's pretty loud. <laughs> anyway, look, anyway, we'll yeah. digress. So let, let's we'll we'll come back to the book. Um, but let's let's talk about you know those previous books that you wrote, which yeah. is in a completely different you know non-fiction uh, in the education sphere. Yeah. I think we have an employer in common, at least uh, employer oh. in terms of doing work for us as opposed to being oh, in the right. office. Oxford yeah. University Press. Yes, that's right. That, that's going back. I mean, that's how. I mean, how did I get into writing? Um, I was forced to, really. But it was <laughs> always. How many people say that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I've always read. And I mean, I'm retired now. And at my age as well, there was a lot of children's television on. Even though the television was on, it was always adults and there was no streaming and all this. So I just read a tremendous amount as a child. But. Um, I had a piece that was in the Black Countryman magazine last year, and I, and I, I, in that I said, I never thought it was something I was supposed to do. I know, I mean, I, um, I've got a very sort of normal background. I grew up on the sixth floor of a block of council flats and went on to be a teacher. But although I'd read all these books, it, it I didn't think I was supposed to write them. And um, but I went on a teacher's course, and we had to write, and I enjoyed doing it. To be honest, when I did write, I always enjoyed it. I just never made the connection that you could do it for a living, and um, very very posh cultured lady was teaching the course, and she started reading these pieces I'd written about Victorian England. She goes, "Oh, these are really rather good, aren't they?" And I didn't realise that there were, but I really enjoyed that. So I carried on writing. And at the end of the course, I'd learned specialist teaching skills on how to teach reading in various ways. 
And I wrote to Oxford University Press and told them how good their history books were, but they'd done all the questions wrong. <laughs> and they they called me in. Well, they, first of all, they said, thanks, do you want to buy the next series? And I wrote back and said, <laughs> no, this is how you should have done it. <laughs> and they called me in and said, can we talk to you? And um, so I was taken into an office and it really was, you know, you are checking for bodies because it is like the Morse set. And you know, I work there, walking. so I know oh, I know exactly lovely. what you mean. And um so I got taken in by this guy who I think he was possibly Prince Charles's voice coach, and um he's now actually a, an internationally acclaimed acclaimed playwright who was like the, the editor. And he started saying, Well, what else do you do? And and I said, Well, I've got specialist training in phonics which is the connection between the print on the page and how you pronounce it. Now, you always already commented on I was obviously somewhere close to you because obviously I've got a strong black country accent. So they said, well, so they then gave me the job of doing what was called the, the phonic branch of Oxford, Uni of, of, uh, Oxford Reading Tree, which was the biggest selling um series in the country yeah well, i wrote all the pronunciation guides as you can imagine well i wrote the teacher's manual i wrote the workbooks i helped edit the stories because there's only certain classifications of, of words you can use at certain reading levels and i did all this stuff and um they also asked me to write a series of history books which i did do and um and I said, well, they paid me expenses and a, a small advance. I probably worked on it for two years and wrote a, a series of um, of six books for primary school history on world history. And I got to the end of it and the government brought in the national curriculum and it was totally different to what I'd written about. Oh, no. But they liked the work. Mm. And so they then offered me the job of writing their book on ancient Greece, which I wrote. Um, and then really at that point, the, 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 the editor got himself made redundant and you kind of lose your connection then. Yeah. And so, so that sort of completely, completely fell away. And, uh, but I did get, get into some fiction writing and, um, and I always wrote for the children at school and I actually like writing things like traditional tales and stuff like that, as well as the nonfiction. So I, I I did a lot of stuff like that, which which I, I and I I did write some non-fiction stuff for Pearson as well, um, because of a a boss I worked for who um, he was doing some, so I got to do some. But I I found that I actually finished the 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 last pages of the Ancient Greece book, um, literally on the on the 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 week that my eldest daughter was married, and. And then I'd just been promoted to deputy head and I'm working 60 hours a week. So I would write the shorts, but I just hadn't got time or life was just too busy. Um, and so I kind of abandoned writing for a while, although um, it was a, a one of the things that happened when, um, when, I, when I was writing for Oxford University Presses, they took us to Cutler's Hall in the city of London which was a, a wonderful venue, obviously, for a launch party. And um, 
the managing director's wife asked me what I'd contributed and I explained about the phonics and she listened to me and said, but surely your phonics will be different to ours. <laughs> and I did, did explain that, that I didn't write with a Wolverhampton accent because, I mean, in my head, I sound like Fiona Bruce. I'm sorry, you don't hear your own accent. Oh, um, brilliant. But I did actually, having heard myself on tape, I thought, well... I think she's got a point. It might be a bit like your husband's a film producer and he's just told you he's just remortgaged the house to remake the King's Speech. And, <laughs> and uh, he's to cast Noddy Holder as the therapist. So I could understand where she was coming from. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of my, my ex-wife is, a, is now a teacher, and, but when she was a teaching assistant and yeah. was, was uh, working in... Derbyshire, yeah, in, on the edge of the Peak District in, um, oh, I can't remember, Charlesworth, I think that was yeah, the yeah. school. And she was doing phonics. This was uh, in reception and uh, later on, you know, in, in, in primary school. And one of the, 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 um, one of the pupils came up to her and, and said, uh, I'll try and get the voice, uh, Mrs. Hobart, you, you, you shouldn't, don't, don't beat yourself up that you can't. You can't do the phonics properly and, and make you because your words are funny. Because my wife has an RP accent, my ex wife has an RP accent, and so she was teaching them, you know, and they were going, No, no, it's bus, not bus, and stuff like that. Well, it is bus, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had trouble asking for directions to Borough Market, uh, the other day in London to this, yeah, to this woman in the East End, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, what a, that amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's incredible. But I mean, because well, I, I worked full time for AUP for only four years, but I yeah. still work for them now. And this is 20 years oh. later. I do freelance work. I can't I can't let go of the place because I, yeah, I yeah. loved it. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did actually write to them with, the, with my Greek book and said, are you thinking about republishing it? And they said, we can't because the illustrations would cost an absolute fortune to relicense. Times really? changed, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like you're talking about launch party. When I was there, so over twenty years ago, we had launch parties in London mm. for the Oxford Companion to Food and Wine. It was like this amazing do with like free wine and free yeah. canopies and everything. They, they wouldn't do that now. No, no, no. So picking up the, um, did it, was it retirement that allowed you the time to? It was to write was, again. Uh, yes. Um, not exactly retirement. I'd been a head teacher for um, 14 years and I, I went back into the classroom the last three years, which was hard work, but I did start to to write as I was winding down and then I worked part-time and um, I just do it because I really enjoy the writing. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I really need something like that to keep my mind active and I just really enjoy it. Yeah. And in terms of because you've got that background in in education and as a head and and, and dealing with young people the the power I, I guess the national curriculum doesn't allow this to happen but if i think back on the best teachers i ever had they were the ones who could cast a story that mm. bound it all together and and yeah. made you know gave you a narrative that you could hang on to it's certainly not subjects I and mean, it's less so easy to do in maths but, but social sciences you could because mm, sure, I, I had yeah. a history teacher who would do that he would tell it like a story we'd be we'd be gripped and i loved history and i went on did a level history because of him well you see 
this is the thing about the way they teach writing now. A lot of it is very, very good. But they completely underestimate, the national curriculum underestimates the power of narrative. Because narrative isn't just writing a story, it's how we organise our lives. And the way you just said about, you know, the history teacher, I would say, you know, if we were doing science, write me the life story in first person of a rain molecule when we just studied um, the, the, the water cycle. And then they do it all in first person. But they're saying that a lot of universities are having successes by, um, say, teaching your geography department to write creatively so that you connect the fact that maybe you've just worked out how to prevent mudslides in, in, in Mexico. However, if you have to then put yourself in the position where it goes wrong, you're more empathetic and more thorough in your approach to how you the human results of what appears to be a set of data. And so mm. I think that that's very much underestimated. And the, the language, I feel that the problem with the language that, that that's valued in, um, in exams and what the children are expected to produce, um, if you do a creative writing course, they're going to tell you to, to read Hemingway as the master of prose. Hemingway would probably get level four on his key stage two sats. I know, yeah, I know what you're going to say, yeah. Because, you know, as you say, you know, oh, a frontal adverbial. Well, I thought it was like an extension of a frontal lobotomy first time I saw that. <laughs> I mean, I'd already been teaching English for years. I'd had stuff published. I'm, and, and I'm not against it. What I'm against is when they say this is good and if you don't write like this, you aren't good because I think it makes children who would be wonderful, wonderful storytellers think I'm not very good because I can't do a pale, dilute version of a 19th century novel because that's what gets me the tests. You know, as you say, Stephen King says the road to hell is paved with adverbs. That's t- <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree. No. Yeah. <laughs> is that... You mentioned that rule. Is that something that you've put into your own writing? Do you, do you, have you sort of uh, applied that, what, Stephen, Stephen King? King? Well, I mean, it's interesting because On Writing is such an influential book. Um, I, I, would, I, I, don't, I don't sit there analysing what's there, but what I want is I want a good, clean prose. What I'm aiming for is the invisibility of the writer, I want you to forget that I'm there and I, I want you to just be turning the pages and I'm I'm quite pedantic over it. So, for example, in my book, I've got a, a character and there's some Polish spoken. And I just just for flavour um, to just and not much, but what and, and obviously somebody else translates it when you need to. But I deliberately went through making sure that the words that I've got weren't using letter combinations that were going to stop you dead at reading English. Oh. So, for example, um, like I use the word revenge in Polish, which is zemsta, or nova kurta, which is new coat. But some of the words are things that got things like CZW together. And I think as a reader, those kind of combinations that you don't see, it stops you dead. And I don't want to stop you dead because I want you to go, oh, 
I get the fact, I get, I get the, the the flow of it being in Polish, but it hasn't made me go, oh, oh, oh and step back from the story. Mm. So, uh, um, yeah, and Polish is is particularly difficult if you don't know yeah. what those combinations sound yeah. like. But it's not just that. I mean, just just generally, uh, um, even when I'm writing description, and I think my I've written, I, I write my character goes into these edge lands. And he describes nature. But I try and make sure, first of all, I'm only doing it so it supports the emotion or I'm foreshadowing. So I'm not just writing description for the sake of description. Yeah. And I'm not trying to overload it so it sounds like I'm trying to be clever and pretty. I'm just trying to get it. As I say, I want you to follow my story but not start thinking about the writing because that takes you out of the story. That's a really good point and and something that we you know value very much actually as mm. publishers that um i mean you'd be surprised how many times we push back it to our authors and say look okay you're showing off here you've taken me out of the story yeah and well, they're uh, trying to be too perfect with the the dialect or the yeah yeah I, 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 but it's interesting yeah you know you're coming from an angle of of read you know of a flow the reader uh, of readability mm. and you know applying that knowledge of phonics and what might catch people's you know it, it, when i'm narrating that this mm. this is this is sorry I'm, I'm now doing my actor voice yeah, yeah. when i am narrating and i'm taking a text i mean there are certain con, con, uh, combinations of there we go yeah. combinations of things that, that make you trip up yeah. and uh, when you're reading aloud. And I think it's the same for the eye sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I will also read aloud because sometimes it jumps out of you when you've made a mistake. Um, but as I say, it, it is that, that it's got to be entertaining. And, and some of my stories have got kind of under political undercurrents, but you know, if you want a sermon, go to a church i'm not going to preach to you i just want to have that sense of presenting dilemmas and let you get on with it not not feel like i'm i'm i'm, I'm preaching at you and um and so that's really the, the way I, I i kind of try and think about smuggling things in and i think i think the description one is i know you were talking uh, last week last week on your podcast and so much of it i'm going yes yes so you, you, um, Roger was saying about not describing every element of the character, and my lead character, you, he, there's parts of him that you'd find quite unpleasant. But somebody, one of my, one of the reviewers said, I didn't like Jamie at first, but as I began to understand his life, I understood. And he's a guy who's basically, he's just, he wants to save the world and he can't. Mm. And he's also very guilty about the death of his first wife. And But you only get this story dropping out in little snippets as it goes along. And I did that deliberately because I want you to understand where he's coming from. But as you say, you're not writing Wikipedia page. You, it, I, I remember... Um, Ian Rankin said he, he 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 pictured everybody thinks of Rebus as Ken Stott, but that's not how he was in 
in, in, in Ian Rankin's head when he wrote him. Um, no. And he said, well, I don't really describe the guy. And mm. it That's it? true, yeah, he doesn't. No, it's but we'll, we'll make our own. You want, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you infer it from, you know, his actions and his mostly mm. what he says. Um, and I think that's often enough. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a full description of what they put on that morning. But in a way, it's playing on our... Um, we make impressions by people's behaviour and mm. um, body language and, you know... So we all make different, slightly different impressions of someone yeah. for the same yeah. behaviour. So we all create the character in our in the, in our heads and it can be different, yeah. But as I say, this, this guy... Um, it's how things sort of come at you at random... Um, I'm very aware writing a thriller, I don't need big pieces of description because it slows the story. But I went on Arvind course and I was told, trust your ability to do it by um, Andrew Taylor and Louise Welsh. In fact, they read an extract, extract of my work and they'd picked up a few pages that when I'd crossed the pencil through, they weren't supposed to bother. And they'd go, no, we've read this. This is This is really good. You should be writing like this. And I said, well, I thought it was too... No, no, it's it's what you should do. And I'd gone to a, a literary festival um, in Birmingham and the one slot that was going on in the afternoon that I wasn't really interested in was the one that I picked... I bought the book and walked away and this and gave me the idea for this character. And it was a guy that called Rob Cowens who wrote a book called Common Ground. And he explains about how he went out at night into the edgelands of the city and he'd lost his job as a journalist and had to move in London, had to move back to um, York and wait until his wife could rejoin him. And he would go out into the night and just watch the life of the city. So I've got this guy who is a very abrasive, um, guilt-ridden character and he he finds peace by going out and recording the green spaces that hide behind the buildings in a little chronicle, uh, and he he writes about it and and that's like his his mindfulness, his relief, and it's the two sides of him. So he's a very working class, chippy, Mancunian detective, exiled in Bayer Africa, exiled in Sheffield, and it's like. <laughs> He's got a very urban, working-class attitude to the world, and yet he's very knowledgeable on nature. And there's the two... And let's the, 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 the show the two sides of his character. Um, That's fascinating. It's Jamie Seagrave. Yeah, Seagrave yeah. is the, the character. Yes. Yeah. And that was a, that was actually an editor at Oxford University Press's name, Seagrave, years ago. <laughs> wow. And, and then... I sort of stuck in my mind, and of course, he Jamie is a man who sees grief, although I spell it differently in the what's it and it's uh, fitted, yeah. Ah, uh. and uh, you you mentioned um, you know he has a, a, another protagonist who who joins you know become mm. a partnership, uh, Shona McCulloch. Um, yeah. So, do are they going to work together again in a, in a you got a future book lined up? I've I've left it open that it's possible, yes. And I've had some ideas about um what I could do. 
I'm not sure what to do next. I've written a, a children's story, which I kind of used as a filling. Um, I started writing a story that I've really enjoyed doing, and it was set in the Blitz. And because I, I'm, I'm a historian, um, I wanted to write something because I know history. Yes. And um, also, I think it allows you to get to the humanity of it now, because a lot of modern stories, you're getting too wrapped up in the technology, the CCTV, the mm -hmm. mobile phone. And I kind of like the idea to get... But, but I was having to do a lot of research because I want to get it right. So it staffed things like, you know, it opens in the what is now Docklands, which is very different when it was a Millwall Dock and all this. Oh, um, yeah. And... Um, Things like even the tube lines are different, not just the the fact that things like the Jubilee line wasn't there in 1940, but actually the, the stations are different. So I wanted, uh, so I started researching and I started writing this children's story. And um, everybody that read it says it's actually the best thing I've, I've ever done. Oh, wow. Mm. So I'm wondering what to do. So I'd, I, I, I want to try and get the the children's one out there, but it's not. It's kind of the middle grade, bottom end of young young adults, but it's a good middle grade story. Mm. Um, and I loved writing it, but I was kind of writing it as a filling, and um, so I've got that, and I've got a couple of ideas for Jamie and Shona that I could rewrite, but I, I also really want to do this Blitz one because I think it's got such a lot of potential because and, and I've, I've i've got a lot of the story mapped out already um so that that's possibly where i want to go and i've got another book that i've written previously that i, I really think i could i could rewrite and, and sharpen it up as well which so you know i've got a few things i'm not yeah a few projects on the next. boil <laughs> yeah 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 oh fantastic i mean i i i Applaud anything that's set in World War yeah, II. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, because we we uh, previous guest, um, she's written a children's book set. Is it Jersey or Guernsey? I get them mixed up. It was Jersey <laughs> during the Second World War, mm. um, and that that sounds fascinating, doesn't it? So, well, it's a, it's a fascinating place to go, isn't it? When you I've been to Jersey and you go into the um, the underground. Um, a hospital. Areas, yeah, 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 and and also where the uh, I think is it is it. Cape Grenay, is it where the, the German observation points and yeah, with mm. incredible concrete brutalist yeah. uh, defensive yeah. points, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, not been, but I I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. that's another place we should go after Sheffield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's high on the list. Mm. But so, so the passion the passion yeah. doesn't dim then for for writing. No, I mean, again, be being retired, I really need to, to do do something. To keep, you can do DIY jobs, and I do a lot of gardening and <laughs> things like that. But I find I can't just sit and watch television. I just go well, but I just, I just really enjoy doing it, and um, and I, and opportunities like this because it gets you out into the world. Like last week, I was speaking at literature festival. I'd like to do that kind of thing if I'm people find I'm okay at it, you know. But it's, it's just. You need to you need to keep your mind alive as well when you when you finished work you're not finished you need to be getting on with it and and so yeah no I really really enjoy what I do so what was it like at the festival what did you what did you um, do I did um 
I did a talk at the library and they had to meet the authors and that was um we were free because the really big acts were charging back in the in the in the art gallery um but it was very good because I probably got about 40 people and many of them were people I didn't know it wasn't just friends turned up you know I perhaps had about eight maybe eight or nine friends but the vast majority were people who just read the blurb so it was like a writer's um a writer's descent into crime and <laughs> the struggle to get published because it is so difficult to get published. And, um, and I mean, you, you will know far more about this than I do because you're, you're, you're the gatekeepers of selection, <laughs> but there's so many fa factors go on. Do you just like it? Is it something that's, uh, that you might love it, but you don't think it's commercial. Have you just got too many books on the go at once and somebody sends you a good book, you're going, I really like this, but we're just too busy. We can't fit another one in. It, it has happened. And it's the look of the, uh, you know, it, it's not always the look of, I, I keep thinking sometimes writing's a bit like watching the voice. There's <laughs> people out there that have got fabulous voices that just don't get the break. Mm. And there's people who are judging them who can't sing as good as they can. And That's true. true. I couldn't write a book. <laughs> I can write, but I couldn't write a book. Well, again, I mean, the great Alan Corrin, um, Victoria Corrin Mitchell's father, was a wonderful humorist. He said, but 3,000 words is my limit. Mm. He said, you know, the, the, to cover, and, it, and the man was a genius, but I'm sure he could if he'd have tried. I'm sure he was <laughs> just too busy enjoying himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have taken away from the day job of uh, getting a few drinks in, I should think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think we've reached the point um, where we need to uh, to ask you, Tim, the... To, to higher the tone, lift the tone. No, I always say, well, you know, this could go in any direction, so I, I can't I can't guarantee <laughs> it will it's, lift the tone. It is actually going slightly mm. south. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, in which case, uh, with some trepidation, I say it's time for Rebecca's random question. So when I was making breakfast this morning for myself, I was thinking how boring I am because I always have the same breakfast almost every day, which is tomatoes on toast with grated cheese on top. Oh. So my question to you is, if I said to you, you could only eat the same thing for breakfast for the rest of your life, what would it be? Right. For many years, I ate porridge. Uh, now I'm retired, I have time to peel fruit. So I think I would actually probably go with selections of fruit and yoghurt for the healthy option, but I do really like it because it's very leisurely. However, you have caught me on a bad morning because <laughs> I got back in from London, four days in London to go, let's have a cup of tea. This milk says it's okay till the 10th. No, it's not. <laughs> so this morning I've had one green tea and, of course, all, we've all the bread stale because I haven't had a chance to get out to the shops. Oh, no. So, yeah, but that's... Oh, I feel sorry me. for you. That would, so that anything, would hurt. Anything this morning. But, yes, I think perhaps the, the, the selections of mixed fruit and nuts and putting my feet up for a very slow, leisurely breakfast. As, that's a good choice. As, yeah, well, it's better than when you're shoveling things down at half past six in the morning because you know you've got to eat and you've got to go to work. Yes, yeah. I mean, I like the idea that you've got time to peel fruit. We yeah. haven't got time to peel fruit, but you do peel a lot of fruit, actually. Well, I do I do eat a lot of fruit, yeah. When you're watching sure. TV. What, what would be your choice? Then, uh, your... Bacon butter, straightforward. Bacon butter every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
You can't deviate. You can't go onto cornflakes. No, no, I don't think I'd ever do that. Well, yeah, I'd, go, I'd go full English, but it might shorten the life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, love? Oh, it'd be my t- what I have every day, almost every day. I sometimes, go, I sometimes have egg on toast instead, but it's tin tomatoes on toast with cheese and barbecue sauce. And <laughs> apparently... Onto Radio 4 a few weeks ago, they were talking about this. If you can eat three portions of tomatoes every day, there are massive health benefits to that. Yes, I've heard that. Yes, yeah. absolutely right. Mm. You know what? But there are loads of people who say that tomatoes are bad for you, give you inflammation. Yeah, that's when you eat like excessive. Uh, we're talking about. How do you balance that? Have it for breakfast every day. Okay. Well, look. <laughs> Thank you for tackling the, uh, the the random question. I wanted to, uh, before we wrap up, just read um, one review of your, your book, uh, which I thought was beautifully uh, precise. Perfectly executed without a wasted word or moment, just as you described your, your writing process. Mm. And that by Ray Robinson, author of Electricity. And I think yeah. that's a superb um, epitaph, whatever you want to describe it, epithet. Uh, to describe your book, which of course is Days of Long Shadows, and uh, has is now out. So, Tim, thank you so much. Where can we find you online and and find out more about your your work? Um, well, I have got timfranks.org, but I don't really keep it up to date. Um, so I think um, the major area I think I, I, I Facebook page Tim Franks Writing um, that I, I I've. Again, this this whole social social media thing is something that I've had to really learn, and I'm not good at it now. I still press buttons and things disappear. Um, so probably a Tim Frank's writing there'd be the the most to learn. Um, and uh, as I say, I've got timfranks.org, but there's not much on that. I've got my short story. I did have a short story on Radio Four, and and it's there. Which yeah, is fantastic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's brilliant. And uh, and someone didn't go and say, well, did you have different phonics for Radio 4? For... Yeah, you're, you're Radio <laughs> I'm 4. I'm the writer. They didn't, um, they didn't, they never they didn't asked hear you. Were... Yes, I didn't do a voice test to, to read it for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I had a guy off the arches, actually, so. Yes. Oh, did they? Yeah. Well, they're all trying to sort of, yeah. Well, I quite like Radio 4 short stories. I always catch them on the school run. Oh, I think, look. But uh, some of them are very odd. It's a completely different discussion, but... If you think about Britain's literary heritage of the last 100 years without the home service, then Radio 4, where would we be? And the fact is, you know, without Radio 4, there's an awful lot of voices that would not have reached, you know, wider audiences. I've listened since childhood completely. Yeah, me too. You know, the first thing I remember was um, the Clitheroe kid on a Sunday lunchtime. (laughs) <laughs> and my dad bought me a crystal set there's one for the teenagers with the old Bakelite headphones so I could listen to the repeat on a Monday night while I was in bed and then Fantastic. there was Round the Horn and I'd listen to that and I got cassette versions when I was in my 20s and I went to my mum mum why did you let me listen to these when I was 8 they're filthy she said yeah <laughs> you just thought they were funny voices then yeah, yeah. I've always listened to all the time. I listen to radio drama constantly. My phone is full of sounds, downloads, as well as audible books. Mm. That's just been the soundtrack of my life. Radio four. Yeah, that's no, good. Me too. To, from 
And um, what a lovely way to finish, because it is the centenary this week of the pips. Is it? Yes. Are they going to do 100 pips? No, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> I caught it on the radio on Today program where they were talking about the pips mm. and um, the reason they did it the way they did it. And, uh, you know, in 1974, they elongated the last one to make sure that people yeah. recognized that was the point where, you know, and sometimes they do seven pips rather than six because they have to. Uh, uh, well, no, no, no. It's because there are points in, in, in the international uh dateline or whatever where you just have to sort of slip in another oh you lose a second, second. Or, you know, slip in a second and then everything's correct oh, again. so it's it's fascinating and apparently it's just a blue box which sits in the basement of broadcasting house creating the pips i love it's, that i thought it was a woman what <laughs> a woman going beep <laughs> All right. Well, look, Tim, you've you've seen a, into the mind of my uh, as well partner here, um, which uh, is different. But anyway, look, thank you for uh, for spending some time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Terrific chat. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And uh, congratulations to Tim for the publication of his first book, and some uh, real, <laughs> just one of the funniest anecdotes we've heard. <laughs> about the uh the oup was it oup um boss saying about uh uh you know surely your phonics are different from mine i think it was a wife of someone wife wasn't of somebody, it, or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that and no, that was just... very very funny story yeah well thank you so much to tim and we wish you all success with your book and uh in the future and uh, lovely to speak to somebody not so far from us here in staffordshire okay next week's guest is so next week we're talking to um, an author, another author from Zumtold, um, and her name is Miriam Halami. Yes, Miriam Halami will be joining us, another of uh, the authors from the publishing house Zumtold, uh, who have become very close friends of ours in the last few months. And they're months. doing something innovative with audio as well. So They are. Um, well, they're, they're using me. Pioneers in the... <laughs> Well, not just that, but they're setting up something that's quite innovative. Um, they are, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that'll be uh, terrific. Now, it's half term for us, and this is the half term where we don't have the, your boys no, with us. No, so they're, they're about going... To go, they're going later to, 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 after this podcast, effectively. Um, and in the past, it's been our, you know, we usually take a few days somewhere but we we're not going to do, done, yeah. yeah we're not doing it this year on the seaside various reasons a we can't afford it b we're just too busy just too busy and this has really been the theme of this week is just recognize i mean i'm trying to to do what i can to support you but you are so so busy it's just getting to the point where you've actually been dare i say on a couple of nights just uh, uh, broken <laughs> not fully but no no um but on the cusp well it's partly because this time of year january till may i'm always more busy than normal because i'm working on the writers and artists year book um there are other factors as well so my work at oup which actually might be winding down in the future is having a bit of a surge of busyness before that happens so mm, mm. <laughs> um and be, I'm not very good at saying no. So when I get approached on Reedsy, I sometimes I give people free help as well, which I shouldn't do, I know. And I have been doing. Um, and then as another client I work for, Research Retold, and that work tends to be quite sporadic. And it just happens. <laughs> mm. Over the last two weeks, I've had something from them as well. So 
it's it's almost like the buses. All the buses have come at once. Yeah, yeah, they have. And uh, of course, you know, we're running Hobex, so that's that's another. And we do have some quite exciting books coming up in the in the spring, early and late mm-hmm. spring. So. Mm-hmm. And working we've on those as well. <laughs> and you've been working on releasing box sets this last week. Yes. And we had the launch tomorrow, of in fact. Blood Ribbons by Lynn Laversha. So we've got box sets coming out tomorrow. We'll tell you about those in just a second. But, you know, so you are stretched in every direction. And it's, it, so, you know, you need to be here. Um, and I need to support you as best I can. I've got lots of things on. But the one good thing that's happened in the last week, I would say, even though it was frustrating at one point, is my dad is back at home after being released from hospital for a third time. So let's just recap. He had a heart op- major heart operation in October, then had to go back in because post-operatively he wasn't in the best shape. And then something else happened from Christmas onwards, and he got worse and worse and worse, and it turned out he was really, really poorly. And uh, eventually we, you know, he managed to persuade the doctors to let him in back at the hospital where he was first operated on so he spent uh, just over two weeks again in hospital getting on top of what's been going on and he's a lot better now and he's out but it was touch and go at one stage very touch and go yes and it's been i mean i've spent some quite a bit of time up there sort of supporting him i mean we had a bit of a cock up because it looked like he was coming out on thursday i went up to go and get him out and they didn't release him so i traipsed all the way back down through the snow to get back here and then do the whole thing again on the Friday. So I lost two days. And, you know, that's just one of those things where the NHS doesn't knit together terribly well because one aspect of releasing him, one test, couldn't be conducted because you can't book it internally, believe it or not, Um, which is crazy, really. But there you go. I mean, these things happen. So that's kind of in the background for now, and that allows me this week to address all the things that are backed up over the last few weeks and try and get on top of them. Now, I'm not expecting to achieve that, but I am desperate to dent the to-do pile <laughs> in a major way and therefore be able to, you know, actually have some headspace, the two of us, to direct the business in a direction, take control and push it in a direction that we want it to go. But actually figuring out what direction that is, we haven't had time to even do that. Yeah, so we do spend a lot of time, what, what I would call firefighting. Yeah. Which is sort of just keeping the to-do pile from getting too big rather than thinking beyond the to-do pile and um, strategically, as you say. We, yeah, we haven't really been able to think strategically. No, we haven't. And it's it's important to do that all the you know, all the time, but to do it regularly enough. And I think, you know, usually every three months is a good yardstick. But in a sense, I think that we started the year with just a... Whew, thank God 2023 is over, let's get into 2024, but without really a, a, a very clear sense of direction. So that's something that we're going to address this week, we hope, and hopefully yeah, next week we can reflect yeah. on that on the podcast. But, um, yeah, it's 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 been tough. It really has. And, uh, anyway, let's talk about these box sets because I'm very excited about these. Yeah, so three of our um, series, crime series, are coming out. Is The first two or three books in box sets the first one is Malcolm Holland Drake's um, The Merseyside Crime Series. Because we have book three coming out in April, we decided to put books one and two in a box set. And we've had quite a few pre-orders, so it's doing very well. So these are new readers to the series, which is great. Um, so that's out tomorrow. 
Also, Linda Versha's um, Steph Grant murder mystery series, we put the first three books in a box set because, um, as you said, Blood Ribbons published last Tuesday. So readers can now, if they haven't come across Steph Grant yet, they can um, download the box set, get into it, and then go on to book four. Yep. And the other series is um, a phenomenally popular series uh, by a very um, talented and knowledgeable writer, Brian Price. I thought you were going to say me. <laughs> No, sadly not. No, no Bri- Brian. Who Brian is brilliant because I send almost all of our books to Brian, and he reads them. He not only is good at proofreading, but he says, "I don't think that character would have that reaction to that particular drug at that particular time unless you gave them blah blah blah." He's brilliant. I've just he's just read um, uh, the forthcoming The Midnight Man, and he's done just that. He's found some very very fine details that aren't quite right. Which you know, Julie was very grateful. Julie Anderson, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Brian's first three books: um, Fatal Trade, Fatal Haste, uh, Fatal Hate, sorry, and Fatal Dose, coming out in a box set tomorrow. Fantastic, and um, very excited about that. So uh, check those out. Check out our website as well: www.hobeck.net. And uh, I I started writing a blog last week about narration uh, (laughs) for my narration website, AdrianHobartNarration.com. Um, but got stuck because it was a sort of, in a way, it was therapy for me because I was really struggling with, um, well, a project actually, and figuring out, trying to figure out how to get to the next stage of it. And so, uh, I was kind of having it, I didn't publish it because it was, it was, it was a start of a, of a cathartic whinge, I suppose, not a whinge, but just you know, the challenges of, of that side of the business. Yeah, but sometimes it's good for you to get that out, isn't it? That's yeah, why we I, used to keep a diary. <laughs> that's right, we did. Yeah, we did used to keep a diary. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think we, we approach this week, if we get good weather, we're going to be on the tennis court a little bit as well. But it's just an opportunity to get on top of things, we hope. And, of course, as soon as we say that, something else will come in, crash its way through and cause problems. But um, I actually think we we should have a day out somewhere. Just one day. We don't have to stay overnight. Just a day out somewhere. Oh, totally. One yeah. of the days. Yeah. Well, think about where you'd like to go. Seaside. <laughs> I thought you might say that. And uh, we'll join you again next week. So for myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you a wonderful and... Creative... Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.